Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, Section 37. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites, by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 14. Capriel to Botsen, Part 4. Hence, a long and steep pull of about a couple of hours brings us out at last upon the level of that vast and fertile plateau known as the Sicer Alp, the largest and certainly the most beautiful of all these upper Tyrolean pasture mountains. Scattered about with clumps of dark fir trees, with little brown chalets, with herds of peaceful cattle, with groups of haymakers, and watched over by a semicircle of solemn, gigantic mountains, it undulates away, slope beyond slope, all greenest grass, all richest wildflowers, for miles and miles around. Yonder, to the southwest, the great plateau rolls on and on to the very foot of the Schlern, which on this side looms up grandly through flitting clouds of mists. A low ridge of black and sheltered rocks, called the Rossan or horse jaw, from its resemblance to a row of broken teeth in a jawbone of rock, connects the Schlern with the north end of the Rosengarten Range, as well as with the southern extremity of the Seisser Alp, and with the ridge out of which rose the Platte Kogel and Longkaufel. But the Rosengarten is quite hidden in the mists that keep flying up with the wind from the side of Botzen. The Longkaufel, however, stern and solitary, with a sculptured festoon of glaciers suspended above a deep cleft in the midst of its bristling pinnacles, and the Platte Kogel, crouching like an enormous toad, with its back towards the slurn, show constantly, sometimes singly, sometimes both together, sometimes in sunshine, sometimes in shadow, as the vapors roll and part. A vast panorama which should comprehend the Marmolata and Tofana, and many a famous peak beside, ought to be visible from here. But all that side is wrapped in clouds to-day, and only the cella, and gardens on a massive stand free from vapor. Now and then the curtain is lifted for a moment towards the west, revealing brief glimpses of wooded hills and gleaming valleys, bounded by far mountain ranges, blue, tender, and dreamlike, as if outlined upon the sunny air. But, apart from the view it commands of its three nearest neighbors, the Langkofel, Platkogel, and Schlern, the great sight of the Seisser Alp is the Seisser Alp. Imagine an American prairie lifted up bodily upon a plateau from 5,500 to 6,000 feet in height. Imagine a waving sea of deep grass taking the broad flood of the summer sunshine and the floating shadows of the clouds. Realize how this upper world of pasture feeds from 13 to 1,500 head of horned cattle, contains 300 herdsmen's huts and 400 hay chalets, supports a large summer population of haymakers and cowherds, and measures no less than 36 English miles in circumference, and then, after all, I doubt if you will have conceived any kind of mental picture that does justice to the original. The air up here is indescribably pure, invigorating, and delicious. Given a good road leading up from Seiss or Castelruth, and a fairly good hotel on the top, the Seisser Alp, as a mountain resort, would beat Monte Generoso, Albisbrunn, Seligsberg, and every other Somorfrisch on this side of Italy out of the field. The peasants of these parts preserve a vague tradition of a prehistoric lake, 
said once upon a time to have occupied the center of this alpine plateau. A legend which gains some color from the fact that were it not for the gap of the Puffler Gorge, down which the drainage flows to the Grodner Thal, there would at this present time be a lake in the depression on the summit. Having wandered and lingered up here for nearly a couple of hours, we at length begin descending by the course of the Chippichbach, a torrent flowing down the deep cleft that separates the Sicer Alp from the northwest face of the Schlern. Coming presently to a cheesemaker's hut a few hundred feet below the edge of the plateau, we call our midday halt. A bench and a table are accordingly brought out and set in the shade. The good woman supplies us with wooden bowls of rich golden-colored cream. The mules graze, the guides go indoors and drink a jug of red wine with the herdsman and his son, the mists roll away, and the huge aiguilles of the Schlern start out grandly from above the woods behind the chalet, as if on purpose to be sketched. From this point down to the bathhouses at Rotz's, the way winds ever through fir forests that exclude alike the near mountains and the distant view. About halfway down we pass within sight of the ruined shell of Schloss Haunstein, once the home of Oswald of Wolkenstein, a renowned knight, traveller and minesinger who was born in the year thirteen sixty seven fought against the turks at nicopolis in thirteen ninety six was present at the storming of schutza in fourteen fifteen encountered innumerable perils by land and sea in the crimea in armenia persia asia minor italy spain england portugal and the holy land and died here in the castle of Hohenstein in the year fourteen forty five he was buried in the church of the famous abbey of Neusfit near Brixton, where his tomb may be seen to this day. His love-songs, hymns, and historical ballads are published at Innsbruck, collated from the only three ancient manuscript copies extant, one of which belongs to the present Count Wolkenstein, one to the Imperial Library at Vienna, and one to the Fernandium at Innsbruck. A more rough and primitive place than the little bathhouse of Rotz's it would be difficult to conceive. It lies at the foot of those tremendous aiguilles which we just saw now from the herdsman's chalet, but we have come down some eighteen hundred feet since then, and now find ourselves at the doors of a building that can only be described as two large wooden chalets united by a covered gallery. The bathrooms occupy the ground floor, and the bedrooms the two upper stories. A tiny chapel, a small bowling-ground, one large general spitzsaal, where eating, smoking, and card-playing are going on all day long, and a tumble-down dependence about three hundred yards off for the reception of the humbler class of patients, complete the catalogue of the attractions and resources of Ratz's. What the accommodation in that dependence may be like, it is impossible to conjecture, for here in the establishment a small bedroom measuring ten feet by eight, containing a straw-stuffed bed, a wooden tub, a chair, a table, a looking-glass the size of a small octavo volume, and no scrap of carpet or curtain of any kind is the best lodging they have to offer. The mistress of Rotz's, a lively, clear-headed, business-like widow, with nine children, makes up seventy beds in the bathhouse, and could find occupants for seventy more if she had more space. Her customers are, for the most part, small tradesmen and their families from Botzen, and peasant farmers from the neighboring villages. Two springs, one impregnated with iron and the other with sulphur, supply these visitors with baths and medicine. There is a priest in daily attendance, but no doctor, 
and the patients appear to choose their springs at haphazard. The baths are of the simplest kind, mere pine-wood boxes coffin-shaped with wooden lids just reaching to the chin of the occupant, and a wooden shelf inside to support the back of his head. These boxes, ranged side by side in rows of eight or ten, fill a succession of gloomy, low-roofed basement chambers, and look exactly like rows of coffins in a series of dismal vaults. This impression is heightened very horribly when the unwary stranger, peeping timidly in, as I did, through a wide-open door, sees a head solemnly peering up from a coffin lid in a dark corner, and hears a guttural voice saying, in sepulchre accents, Guten Abend. One night at Ratz's is enough, and more than enough, to satisfy the most curious traveller. Of its clatter, its tobacco smoke, its overcrowded discomfort, its rough accommodation, one has, in truth, no right to complain. The place such as it is suits those by whom it is frequented. We who go there neither for sulphur, nor iron, nor to escape from the overpowering heat of Botzen are, after all, intruders, and must take things as we find them. We leave Ratz's the next morning at half-past nine, having to be down at Atzwang by two p.m. to catch the train for Botzen. The morning is magnificent, but we are all sad to-day, for it is our last journey with the two nestles. The path winds at first among fir forests, rounding the base of the great aiguilles, and passing a ghastly cleft of ravine, down which a huge limb of the Schlern crashed down headlong, only twelve years back, strewing the gorge, the pastures, and all the mountain slope with masses of gigantic debris. Now, still and always descending, we pass farms, hamlets, and churches, pear and cherry orchards, belts of reddening wheat and bearded barley, and come at last to an opening whence there is a famous view. From here we look over three great vistas of valley, northwards up the Kuntersweg as far as Brixton and the Brenner, southwards towards Trient and the Val d'Inon, northwestward along the wide path of the upper etched in the direction of Meran. At the bottom of a deep trench between tremendous walls of cliff, close down beneath our feet as it seems, flows wide and fast the grey tide of the Isaac. The high road that leads straight to Verona shows like a broad white line on this side of the river. The railway, a narrow black line burrowing here and there through tiny rabbit holes of tunnel, runs along the other. A whole upper world of green hills, pasture alps, villages, churches, cornlands, and pine forests lies spread out like a map, along the plateaus, out of which those three valleys are hewn, and beyond this upper world rises yet a higher, all mountain summits, faint and far distant. From this point the path becomes a steep and sudden zigzag. It is all down, down, down. Presently we come upon the first vineyard, and hear the shrill cry of the first cicala. And now the rushing sound of the isaac comes up through the trees, and now we are down in the valley, crossing the covered bridge, dismounting at the station. Here is Answang, here is the railway, here is the hot, dusty, busy, dead-level world of commonplace again. At Asfang we part from Clementi and the mules, Giuseppe going on with us to Botzen. Clementi is very loath to say good-bye, and L, albeit unused to the melting mood, exchanges quite affecting adieus with fair Nestle. As for dark Nestle, callous to the last, he shakes his ears and trots off quite gaily, evidently aware that he has finally got rid of me, and rejoicing in the knowledge. 
And now, arriving at Botzen, we arrive also at the end of our midsummer ramble. For a week we linger on in this quaint old medieval town. For a week the pinnacles of the Schlern and the grand façade of the Rosengarten yet look down upon us from the heights beyond the Isaac. As long as we can stroll out every evening to the old bridge down behind the cathedral, and see the sunset crimsoning those mighty precipices, we feel that we have not yet parted from them wholly. They are our last dolomites, and from that bridge we bid them farewell. End of section 37 End of Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites by Amelia B. Edwards Read by Sibella Denton, August 2007